Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today we are joined by Sidi Mubin Vaid, who has a master's in Islamic studies from the Hartford Seminary. Um, and he's, he's, he's published a number of works, particularly on the realm between gender norms and sexuality, um, including one of my favorite pieces titled, Can Islam Accommodate Homosexual Acts? Quranic revision re revisionism and the case of Scott Kugel. Um, and so in today's discussion, we're going to touch on a number of topics um, and I'm excited to see where it goes, but thank you for joining us, bro. No, khair for having me. Alhamdulillah. So the, the first question I want to ask you is that, you know, in today's discourse, one of the major themes that we're seeing is this topic of gender. Um, and this topic of gender can be dissected through so many different angles, from the differences between the male to the female, um, with the differences with, you know, all of these new movements and ideas coming out regarding transgenderism and stuff and such and sort. But I wanted to ask you, you know, what are your initial thoughts about what is occurring right now? Um, both of us are based in the United States right now. Um, you know, give, a, give us an insight, give people insight into what exactly are you, what exactly is going on right now in our world in terms of genders and these new ideas that are coming out? Um, so I, I was saying that I think that there are different ways in which uh, a person can analyze what's happening right now. I think there is a way in which a person can look simply at the topic of gender and say that what we have in front of us is a newfangled movement that is attempting to fashion an entirely new discourse on the topic of gender by advancing certain things and ideas that have existed in perhaps marginal spaces in more nominal ways in academic gender studies. Um, and that those things are now just getting greater hold within uh, sort of the public space and the public square. Mm -hmm. I think that's one way to look at it. I, I think perhaps a better way, and Allah knows best, but I think perhaps a better way to look at a lot of what's going on with gender overall is to simply see it as a symptom of a broader set of problems that we mm. have going on in the modern world and specifically in the modern West. I think we are really struggling with, with this issue of human dislocation, right? And that human dislocation has been contributed to uh, through a number of things, right? You have destabilized to a large extent religion, right? And a real rigorous, robust notion of public faith being affirmed and if even if we just view faith as a sociological reality, not speaking to the truth claims of religion, mm -hmm. although obviously we believe that there's something true, cer certainly everything true about Islam, that Islam uh, asserts and, uh, and commands and, and obtains a certain truth value that other faiths uh, don't, right? That uh, Islam is, uh, is truth and others are falsehood. But even if we just take it at sort of the most uh, generic superficial level where we talk about it as a sociologically useful activity to participate in, faith has a way of mediating people's participation in the world, which is uh, healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to say that it gives people certain tools and devices that they can leverage as part of their day-to-day -day life when it comes to providing them a sense of meaning and purpose, when it gives them a way in which they can process uh, individual failure or difficulties and challenges that they're going through. It, it provides them a, a sense of being, right? Why was I created? Uh, what, what am I here for? It, it helps them process loss, including human loss. And so when we talk about, you know, the difficult moments that we go through in our lives, uh, especially the loss of a loved one, Right, that can, you know, when, when you sort of get rid of uh, the edifice of faith, you, you destabilize uh, many things that people used to rely upon faith for. Mm -hmm. Suddenly now they are sort of grasping at a lot of other things to try to fill those vacuums, right? So I think that's one. You also have destabilized uh, the sort of traditional social setting insofar as men and women have participated in the world in fairly predictable although variable ways for most of human history, mm -hmm. which is to say that although men and women lived in societies differently and those societies took shape in many different ways, 
the vast majority of human history has been one where men and women have complemented one another, which has been ordered around the protection and preservation of the family, mm-hmm. which has placed tremendous value on a specific ordering and negotiation of male and female contributions to the life of the family. And so now you have the father role, right, or the position of the father, which has really been diluted. Um, even the, the idea that a man gets up and earns for his family, that, that it gets him out of bed, right? That, that's a very antiquated notion. When we think about how people talk today about family or what a good father is supposed to be, right? There's, there's a lot of debate over what a good father looks like and what, what it even means to be a father. Likewise with the mother, right? You have, uh, you have destabilized the traditional notion of motherhood as something that independently furnishes value, that it is something that inherently contains beauty and mercy and love, and it's something that, you know, human societies cherish. Uh, today, it is, it is, it retains some vestiges of that tradition, but more often, you know, women who have to take up the responsibilities of motherhood are often spoken of with tremendous uh, sympathy. You know, you, you feel you feel bad for women who are in, in a situation where they are burdened by children and stuck in their homes and their life is a domestic life of labor and they're unable to pursue their own happiness and they're unable to really uh, gain professional fulfillment in mm-hmm. a way that men can. And so you've, you've destabilized the, the sort of place of motherhood in society. You've destabilized children and what that entire relationship is supposed to be about and ordered around. So, you, so you've destabilized religion, you've destabilized family, destabilized societies economically, mm-hmm. where you know the modern, modern neoliberal order is is simply negotiated against the maximalist concept of what I can take from someone else, and the only thing that will limit my economic and financial pursuits will be laws that explicitly prohibit specific activities and place guardrails on what I can do. Mm-hmm. But within those guardrails, there's really nothing that there's no greater moral compass that will guide my financial participation or the buying and selling and trading that I'm actually participating in and doing. And so, you know, the, the sort of habits of the addicted consumer have overtaken, overwhelmed our societies as well. Um, you've, you've destabilized a lot of social solidarity when it comes to the local community. So there's there's a lot. I mean, the list could go mm-hmm. on. And I think, so, so, I so think- basically, so basically, what you're trying to hint at is that not you know this this crisis that we're in re- with regards to gender is merely a symptom of a myriad of other factors, which ultimately yeah. result from the neglect of religion and the inf- impact that religion has not only on one's individual life, but on one's family. And that when the family system begins to kind of break down, you begin to see the other domains begin to break down as well. Yeah, I think I, I think the way I'd put it is that I think gender is, a, is sort of a casualty of war. Okay. Right? Hmm. I, I think it's kind of a casualty of war. And I think religion is a part of what we've lost. I think there's a lot of what we've lost. And I think we're still trying to come to terms with how to live together um, and coexist in a society that is intensely technocratic, who the sort of axis around the modern, around which the modern person lives is a technological axis. And all of the consequences of that are still things that we haven't really fully reckoned with. I mm. don't think, I, I don't think we have fully reckoned with, even though we, we feel them, we feel the consequences of unbridled access to pornography, for mm. instance we feel and we witness the consequences of what is happening now to people vis-a-vis loneliness and social atomization. We are recognizing and appreciating what happens to people when they have no sense of individual purpose. We recognize what happens to people when they are driven and fueled by little more than spite and mutual hatred. Mm-hmm. And the type of, and the type of ongoing and abiding animosity that can drive an individual's day-to-day existence and what they say and what they do and how they write and how they conceive of or perceive of people 
and, and just how how bitter people can turn. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and we're sort of we have all these problems and, and I think we're still trying to seek out solutions to them. And I think the popular wisdom in modern society today is that, well, we're gonna outsource these problems and try to atomistically respond to them using, you know, the professional gatekeepers responsible for them. So, you know, the problem of, you know, social, you know, public combat, right? Like mortal combat in <laughs> social media and <laughs> politics and everything else. Well, that's a problem we're gonna outsource and we're gonna try to get the therapist to resolve. So the issue mm-hmm. is that people just individually need a lot more therapy because they're so they're so combative and spiteful and they're turning into online mm-hmm. trolls and they wake up and they can't go to sleep and they're doing all these things. Well, they just need a therapist to help them do it. And you know what? You know what's very interesting is uh, just just an hour ago, about an hour ago, I was at UC Berkeley. Um, I was just I, I was walking around and there was this individual and he had his own uh, his own like booth, uh, his own booth on wheels. And he was walking around and he had a simple sign that, you know, you can make within 30, with, with 30 cents maybe. And it said free meditation books. And you would be appalled at how many people approached him, how many people approached him saying, you know, I have an addiction, you know, I have a problem I'm looking for just some, some, something to help cope with the suffering that I'm going through. And he had these very cheap, you know, what we would call dawah pamphlets, and he was giving them out. But to me, it was it was very surprising seeing, you know, the lack of spirituality in our culture today, and how much people are yearning for it. Because when I could, when I was looking at, because I was speaking to him for a while, when I was looking at these people, you could see that there was something very uneasy about them. Yeah. They were declaring all of their problems, um, and so. For me, you know, I think it was an excellent point you mentioned in the beginning, which I'll reiterate, is that this whole crisis of gender that's going on is just merely a symptom of a deeper crisis, which is ultimately the crisis of nihilism. Yeah, no, and I think and I think it's interesting you bring that up about sort of the guy with the pamphlets. I'm actually not surprised at all, right? Mm. One of the uh, one of the most popular apps downloaded on like Google Play and the App Store, it's actually a mindfulness app that was developed by Sam Harris. Mm. So it's Sam Harris's mindfulness app. You know, it's just atheist mindfulness practices. And he draws on Buddhism and other sort of Zen practices for a person to become more spiritually healthy and, and internally aware and things like that. Mm-hmm. But he uses a lot of the secular idiom mm-hmm. to describe, you know, he, he offers a sort of secular spirituality up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's become part of his public brand almost. In fact, it's perhaps today, arguably the most popular part of his public brand, far more popular than whatever scientific inquiry he's doing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I, I don't even know. I think he's like, I think he'd be a neuroscientist, something like that. I, yeah, I think he is PhD in neuroscience. Yeah, neuroscience. I don't think anyone's like deeply interested in what he's studying or his research, what he's mm-hmm. published. I think far more people today are frankly interested on the way in which he thinks about social issues, political issues, and then, you know, are, are looking to him for moral and spiritual guidance, right? <laughs> which, is, which is kind of a bizarre, which is kind of a bizarre thing, right? Is that we, we keep vesting more and more authority in the hands of people and looking to them to reform society. And uh-huh. a lot of times they're, they're not people who are capable of doing so, right? And this is, this is the type of burden that I see tossed on the shoulders of the modern therapist mm. that has to go in and try to reform society. And they're doing so on a sort of case-by-case, person-by-person basis. And I'm not doubting that in certain situations they can potentially help a person or alleviate their anxieties and depression and everything else. But the whole point is that that is, that is anecdotal. And what these people are dealing with is symptomatic of a much, much broader social mm-hmm. problem that we're really not getting to the root at we're just we're just talking about sort of surface level um you know issues that are arising as a function of all these uh prior prior transitions and transformations mm-hmm. that, uh, you, that i think we still don't we don't know what to do with right exactly and i think these are really you know these are problems of the soul and i think this is these are people's souls that are yearning yeah. for you know what you know what the fitra knows it needs um, and because it's just been so clouded, it's been so, you know, haze, hazed out, people are just, you know, they're just lost. 
Um, and as somebody, you know, who's, who's already done one university degree and is now doing another, um, I can, and who did it in two countries. Cause I did my first one in Canada. Um, cause I'm Canadian. Um, you see the parallels, you see the parallels and you know, that's uh, one thing very interesting. I'll tell you is we had our Islam awareness week. Um, and I noticed that we weren't getting as much attraction and I said, okay, I have an idea. I don't really recommend people to do this uh, because it was kind of randomly done, but I, I, I grabbed one of our boots and I just pushed it to the side because I didn't want it affiliated with our MSA. And then we wrote, we wrote a sign which said, change my mind. God exists. And we just, yeah. we just left it there. And I, and me and just another brother, we just sat down and uh, initially people just walked by, they took pictures and they laughed. And I was like, okay, I guess this was a failure. And then all of a sudden, all of them come at the same time. And there's dozens of them just surrounding the table. Many of them very curious as to, you know, what we were actually saying. Um, and it's a beautiful point that you brought up earlier, where I had this one woman who told me directly in my eyes, she said, you know, I am an atheist. I do not believe God exists. However, one thing I cannot deny is that religion is incredible for coping with suffering. And that my best friend had lost her mother and she used religion. She found God during those difficult moments. And it was because of that, that she was able to move on and overcome that hardship. So I'm really envious of people with religion because you have something that I really want, but because it's unscientific, uh, I'm not going to believe it. So the arrogance of the person comes out, but you can see when speaking to some of these individuals that they're, that they're really searching for the truth. And because of the image that's been tainted about Islam, um, I think many of them, you know, I think, um, I think, uh, I forgot who was, it was an American philosopher who once said, um, Americans are too scared to think about thinking about Islam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic that she says that, you know, obviously the person who says, you know, I envy religion, she has core commitments and beliefs. Mm -hmm. so it's not as if she's a person who doesn't have a religion. She just doesn't recognize the religion she has. In some ways, one of the things to me that's been really remarkable to witness has been the way in which, especially over the past few years, we have kind of sit, sat back and, and almost watched the development and crafting of public religions in front of our eyes. Mm. We've seen people stamp out creeds of beliefs. We've mm -hmm. seen we've seen acts of public confession. We have seen the rooting out of heresy and the uh, the searching for uh, you know orthodox and unorthodox beliefs and the articulation and exposition of what orthodoxy should demand of people. We've, we've seen all these things kind of, you know, developed almost anew mm. in, in a realm that doesn't own or fully recognize that that's what it's doing, although it's precisely what's going on, precisely mm. what's going on in a lot of ways. And uh, I, I, think, I think our public square, as a result of that, is witnessing sort of immature public religions mm. that have been brought and crafted almost impressionistically. So this is not something that has gone through deep deliberation. Mm. It, it's just something that has, has been mostly a reaction to various circumstances. So it's a moral project. And you have multiple religions, I think, that, that have now come to the fore. And you're seeing what seems to have the hallmarks of a sort of holy war in our public square hmm. in just the intensity of many of their fights. Um, I, I tend to liken it. And sometimes I, I do feel that the, the degree of hostility that we see on certain issues almost reminds you of, of a bad marriage, that <laughs> right? Where, where, the, where the only thing that motivates you against is, is to act against the other person, right? all of your activity and your thought is is ordered around spite mm -hmm. this hatred you, to, you just want to do things out of spite towards exactly there's no memory of that person having done anything good to you 
mm-hmm. and you hate that person so much that you don't want to give an inch. There's no concession that that is acceptable to you, and you gain joy and pleasure out of seeing people recognize how horrible those people are. Mm-hmm. And you make it your mission to convince those around you to treat that person like a moral monster. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it is so overwrought and overbearing. Like it's just, it, it's just, and it's constant. There is mm-hmm. no let up. Just and the just, reason, the reason yeah. why it's constant is that there's an element of social engineering that is going on. Of course, and, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I, I want to hear what your thoughts no, no, no. on. Uh, no, yeah, no, go but, ahead. <laughs> for me, I, I, people don't know, but I think about social engineering a lot. And I always, okay. I just imagine, you know, there's this, there's a secret room and there are these academics sitting at a table and they're deciding what is the, what do we want the future, what, are, what, are, what is the future of our society going to look like? What values do we want our people to incorporate? And then they pass it on to the media, to the social media influencers, and it just trickles down to the masses. And I think that had you had you picked up a person from Arabia, a person from India, from Africa, who lived 500 years ago, thousands of years ago, and you placed them in this society, they would be appalled at, you know, just in general of what's going on. Um, not necessarily, obviously, from a technological perspective, but also from an ethical perspective. I mean, yeah. if both of us speak to our own parents, and we went to our par- you know, we went to our mother, and we said, "Oh, by the way, you know, I'm I'm a female today," um, she'd be like, "What are you talking about? Like, I have no idea. Um, you know, this doesn't this doesn't make any sense." But in today's discourse, because we have been consuming media. Um, when somebody says something like this, it's just a norm, right? It's the norm now. Whenever you go to a meeting, the first thing you must say after your name are your pronouns. Um, because now, you know, the, the most important thing about your identity after your name is not your religion, it's not your ethnicity, but it's your pronouns. And all of this is social engineering at its finest. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that there is a lot of social engineering and that social engineering does induce and promote certain types of behaviors. And it's, you know, there there is with the state and pervasiveness of technology, it is far easier to socially engineer and manipulate people's opinions and to craft the polls, the Overton window around a particular debate, and then just watch people fight for days and weeks. Mm. And then, you know, when when you need a new topic to toss another football into the ring. And take the other one out, and then just saw, watch people go to town. I mean, I, I, I'm often astonished at how intense some debates will be over certain issues. Like it, it'll, you know, people you will watch people online literally coming apart and unraveling emotionally on certain issues. And I don't think I don't think that is all performative. I think they have really been roped in mm. as true believers into these debates, and they don't recognize the extent to which they are being engineered and manipulated. That their emotions have become a plaything for the power brokers of these conversations, mm-hmm. where you know, for you know, as long as these debates are important debates for whoever, you know, once wants us to argue about it for some period of time, it'll become the most important issue to argue about. And then you give it a couple of months, and then you look back a year later and you say, well, what happened to everyone's passion on an issue like that? Mm-hmm. Right? And we see it all the time. I mean, you think about, think about the border, right? I mean, a few months ago under Trump, there was so much concern for migrants at the border. Yeah. And the conditions of border facilities and everything else that's taking place. And Biden and Harris have come in and they have shifted a lot of policies and they've tried to take a more humane approach towards migrants coming across the border, as well as trying to deal with um, you know, migrant illegal immigrants who are already in the country and have been in the country for years, right? So what do we do? How do we grant them path to citizenship? So it's not like it's identical to Trump. But at the same time, they're also doing and saying a lot of things that would never have been acceptable 
exactly the people who only a few months ago saw this as basically inhumane and were you know shrieking and crying and yelling at people and dissolving friendships and you know dissolving friendships that they've had forever over disagreements about what prudent immigration immigration policy should look like mm -hmm. and at, and now you look at them and say well okay well regardless of what you thought you know, at that time, here's what's going on right now. We still do have a lot of problems at the border, and some of them are just as acute. Some of them have gotten worse. Some of them have gotten better, but the problem didn't go away. What happened to your outpouring of emotions on this issue? And I'm not suggesting that people have to stick with an issue for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that when you see a person's position, that they appear to care about so much change almost in an instant. And that instant just so happens to coincide with a particular political transition, well, then there is something fishy, right? There exactly. That you can point at. And, you, and, I, and I don't think it's hypocrisy. I don't think it's, oh, well, you're just following whatever your party says or something. I do think, however, that people are unselfconsciously directed as to the type of things that they should care about. Mm -hmm. And they are far too easily swayed by the propagandistic breezes of our social square exactly so the social and discursive spaces that we occupy have a certain way of telling us what issues should be debated and argued about and fought about and what becomes of immediate interest to people that participate in it are people who are exactly fighting in those spaces mm -hmm. it's not interest it's not interesting just to see a person like you know post a random opinion here and there it's far more interesting to actually see people literally coming to well not literally but figuratively coming to blows online <laughs> that's 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 where we actually that's where we can actually sit and I, I think i think if they met in person there would be physical blows potentially yeah and, yeah you, and it's weird it's weird you say that because there are a lot of times people say oh you behave with people online in ways that you wouldn't in person i think that's true yeah i think that's true for a lot yeah. of people but I also think that what's happened is people have become more socially dysfunctional as a result of this and mm -hmm. less capable of actually negotiating differences interpersonally, right? Exactly. So even if they were in person, I think to a large extent we would have people who still, like their online personality and persona would not simply, it wouldn't be dispensed with just because they have to deal with the reality of a real human being. Mm -hmm. what they would do is the same way that they've caricatured human beings online they'll caricature them in real per mm -hmm. in real life and they'll record it they'll record yeah. it so that the whole world can see it and, and because of this what also happens is that you know you have a remoralizing of our public square in a way that determines what is morally significant and what isn't mm -hmm. and when certain things are not morally significant according to the current fashions of our discursive square, people do not see violations in those spaces as particularly meaningful. Mm -hmm. That's really, really problematic for us as Muslims because what happens is we see people behaving in ways that are immoral or supporting immorality or supporting things that are unethical or doing things that are unethical. Mm -hmm. And there is no way in which for those people to actually receive as, as little as nasiha. Mm -hmm. because it's not actually seen as a problem anymore and the problem is actually being judgmental towards people who have crossed all of those lines mm -hmm. right and when people don't want to hear about something they write it off with different terms and so you know if a person you know you try to remind people about you know speaking well or not not backbiting well you're other policing Mm -hmm. you know your muslims will do this and practicing muslims will do this and they'll, mm -hmm. they'll speak cynically about other policing and it's true that there are people who exploit the concept of adab and weaponize it against those that they don't like but it's also true that there's something called adab that's supposed to guide our actions and akhlaq and that they're not trivial or small things mm -hmm. right ayuhibbu ahdakum an ya'kula lahma akhihi maytan right and so the Hujarat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about backbiting, that would you love to eat the uh, dead flesh of your brother? Mm. You would hate it. You would hate it. That's not a small warning. Mm. And, yet, 
and yet that is other policing? Well, you know, that's that's ridiculous. That's an absurd way to think about adab, akhlaq, mm-hmm. and Islam, right? And, and the commands of Allah. But, they're just reminders, yeah. right? Ultimately, yeah. they're just reminders that, you know, these are reminders that people need. And it's very interesting you mentioned Surah Hujarat because yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu in jaakum fasiqum binaba'im fatabayyanu that all you who believe when, you know, information has been passed on, uh, given to you, make sure you confirm it before you pass it on so you don't harm others. And I think this ayat single-handedly is the solution to the fake news industry. Um, well, it's when news has been given to you by a thasik, right? By someone yeah. who is uh, sort of... Uh, and the, the, the media today... Un- untrustworthy or, or wicked, of some sort, right? But I mean, in uh, yeah. the, the media, I mean, that's, I think that's precisely what the media is today. Um, yep. Malcolm X famously said that the most powerful entity on the planet is the media because they can make you think that the good people are bad and the bad people are good. And because we don't really have media outlets, you know, from our community that can, you know, address these topics from a perspective that would, um, that has our values, well, we're forced to look at other people's media. And when you watch other people's media, Within it are values, within it are beliefs. And so that is how people get socially engineered. That is how we get indoctrinated. And CNN, Fox News are really, even though they're primarily based in America, because of globalization, it's the whole world is beginning to adopt these values. And now we're beginning to see crises, which in history would only occur in one area, now are occurring everywhere because of this globalized culture. No question. No question about it. And it's because... Yeah, there there is a there is an extent to which everything and every anything that we deal with here uh, becomes a matter of public interest around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing I'm I'm no longer surprised by is just how often issues that are really parochial and localized to American Muslims becomes a matter of really uh, you know intense debate with Muslims overseas. Right, mm-hmm. Muslims who don't—it's almost like the uh, the American Muslim community is now driving the the Islamic discussions and what what's important for Muslims around the world. Mm-hmm. Muslims in Bangladesh yeah. and Muslims in Saudi and Muslims in you know Malaysia and all these countries now are looking to American Muslim imams and the American Muslim community and suddenly taking interest in debate. Mm-hmm. that are happening within Muslim organizations mm-hmm. or between Muslim groups and actors and thinkers that are oftentimes driven, fueled, and motivated by factors and realities that don't exist in their homelands nearly the same way that they exist here. Mm-hmm. And yet social media has has made it such that they can actually not only get informed about the specifics of the debate, but actually become participants in it. Mm. And the opposite happens too, where now American Muslims can begin pronouncing on the activities of other Muslims that are happening throughout the world, right? And because these media, especially social media, you know, the the power brokers of it, it's it's a Western technological reality. In some ways, it's... uh, it produces or it contributes to a particular form of Western hegemony, mm. right? Of which American Muslims have a very privileged position, right? When people talk about privilege, right? It's like, okay, well, you guys have a very privileged position in the way you you start talking about thinking about religion, right? And in many cases, that can be quite destructive, very destructive, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that's a very unhealthy reality too. Right. I, you know, I think ultimately you can't have your cake and eat it. Um, globalization has brought a lot of remarkable things to our world, especially to our own community, because now you have an author in America who writes one book and it's being spread out through, throughout the whole world. And now the entire Ummah has this book of one author. Um, and so we're living in an age where information is everywhere and it's very easy to find a book. It's very, in, in minutes, you can get a PDF copy of a book i mean you know back in the day they used to travel thousands of thousands of kilometers just so that they could translate a book and then bring it back and today it's already done for us so i think it's it's brought an immense amount of good to the world but you know we, within within every good you know there, there is some evil 
um, there is some harm. And I think this is this is this is the this is a, uh, the, the dilemma that we're in, where we have these technologies. Either we can discard them completely, which I don't think is very smart, or we can take them in and take the bad that it, that it comes with, right? Yeah, I, I tend to take a more cynical view. <laughs> I would I would describe them more as containing lots of harm and maybe some good. I actually wrote a recent piece on this on the on the specter of the on the specter of digital colonialism and thematic uh, thought. But uh, I do think in general, Muslims have to figure out their own relationship to technology um, because it, it ha it's having a profound, profound effect on our world and on us as individuals. And certainly I, I think, you know, sort of getting back to the topic a little bit, I, I think these are all things that are important and critical because we have to try to, to deal with the topic of gender in an environment where the organic realities of what gender is are no longer obvious to us. They've been obfuscated mm -hmm. by various forms of dysfunction, by various forms of destabilization that have that have uh, made it more difficult for us to discern, ascertain, and channel our own fitri commitments. Mm -hmm. right? Our mm -hmm. fitri impulses have not only been sublimated, but they have been corrupted in many ways as a function of a social square and a political square and an economic and cultural square, it has made it difficult to live as a person who is, you know, morally and ethically ordered. And I think, I think, you know, this also, you know, I, I once read a book, it's a very controversial book um, called um, Brain Sex. Um, and it was written by, um, it was written in the seventies and it was by a journalist and somebody who had their PhD in biology. And it was basically like, it was, they were non-Muslims, but it was basically a commentary on the Quranic ayat, that the male is not like the female. And they just use, you know, biological and psychological evidence showing that not only is the, the body between a male and a female different, but also psychologically and how they have different brains and how that relates into their interactions with one another and how they see the world from really different lenses. Um, and when I, when I read it, you know, I, I was, I remember speaking to my mother about, you know, some of the points and she's like, Oh, you know, this is correct. Um, but like, even, even in today's discourse, just the fact that you say men and women are different is going to cause a lot of problems. Um, I think, I think when we say men and women are different, some people usually interpret that to mean that men are superior to women. Um, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying these are two different genders. Um, and, you know, I actually want to hear your thoughts on this distinction between gender and sex. Um, you know, historically, these were kind of seen as one, but in today's, today's discourse, they're seen as two different discourses. Um, that sex is something which is biological, but gender is an identity. It's something that you, that you can openly choose. Yeah, yeah. So there are a couple of things going on. Uh, I think that there's a question. Well, there's some debates about the chronology and genealogy of the notion of gender. Mm -hmm. okay. Gender, as we understand it today, is something that is viewed as psychological. Mm -hmm. It is a performance. So it's the way in which we perform who we are, as opposed to sex, which is spoken about as who, what and who we are biologically. Mm -hmm. There are debates as to whether or not sex is constructed. This, these are all debates in like gender study spaces, right? So um, there are those who argue that, you know, we shouldn't be sex essentialists. We should recognize that by giving a particular set of physiological and anatomical realities in the human being, locating them and giving them this label, what we're doing is we are, in fact, bringing sex into existence. Mm, okay. repeatedly doing that we're re-articulating um, this thing called sex right uh, likewise with gender right there's, there's this question of you know okay if gender is something psychological it is constructed socially and because it's something that's constructed socially it can be deconstructed mm, and it okay. can be reconstructed in different terms there is very little that is regarded as pre-social, meaning is there anything that is essential to who we are, how we behave? Is there anything that we can look at mm -hmm. to take guidance from to allow us to understand men and women? 
or are men and women just, you know, is, are, is sort, of, sort of men and women just labels that we've grafted on to a set of biological differences that we have identified between, you know, hu- homo sapiens who have been born with certain traits. Yeah. And these, this is just an arbitrary identification or label that we've grafted onto them. And if we had chosen a, chosen a different set of labels and provided them a separate social setting and environment that could contribute to and bring about manifest a totally different sexual and gender schema in that mm-hmm. society such that we, we can, can we de-gender a society? Well, mm-hmm. if we wanted to social engineer our spaces in a way, in a particular way, we potentially could. That's mm-hmm. the argument, right? The idea, and uh, you know, I, I remember one time I was listening to Deborah Rohde and she likened it to- So who a, is she, uh, who is she? She's a, uh, fem- she, I don't know if she, I would call her a feminist thinker. She's a prominent female academic professor of law um, I, when I heard her speak, I want to say she was at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. She was a moderator for and she was speaking at, and she likened it to uh, domestic animals and domesticating animals, right? Mm. The idea being that traditionally the idea of a domestic animal was not there. You had wild animals. But at some point, people started bringing them into their homes, and then you had breeds that were accustomed to being domestic. And those breeds were domestic and domestic animals differed from wild animals. Mm-hmm. Is that okay, there's, no okay. reason, there's no reason to think of the human animal as anything different. It's just slightly more evolved, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we want to domesticate or reorder human behavior, all we have to do is set the environmental conditions in a way that would do so. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you think of, what do you think of when you go to stores? Um, uh, now, you know, there's this debate about um, the only reason why boys like blue and women like pink is because that's how they were socially engineered. And now we have to, you know, make the boys toys pink and now the girls toys blue. And then therefore we'll, we'll see that, you know, this was just merely social engineering. What do you think about that? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. Color preferencing. So there was a really, really popular study that came out. This may have been a decade or two ago that said that color preferencing was a 20th century or 19th century, I want to say it was 20th century, Mm -hmm. Western phenomenon, right? That the pink for girls and blue for boys was specifically a product of Western patriarchal conditions that had, uh, that had, you know, basically indoctrinated even children Mm-hmm. with a certain set of what they're supposed to like and they were growing grow, they ended up growing up liking those colors um and that particular study remains one of the cornerstone studies that is cited um. by by uh gender critical academics uh-huh. that write about the way in which gender conditioning occurs however there were subsequent studies including one i want to say by marco del uh, Gedice or Gedice, uh, G-U-I-D-I-C-E, I believe is how the last name was pronounced, that in fact revisited that study. Mm-hmm. And not only revisited it, but revisited the question itself mm-hmm. and found that color preferencing, in fact, far pre- predated 19th century uh, okay. and certainly expanded out and was far more stable across different cultures, societies, and environments. Uh-huh. And the question is, what accounts for a relatively stable form of color preferencing for men and women, almost irrespective of where they live? Mm-hmm. Why do we see these sort of color preferences playing out the way that they are? Exactly. Is it nature or is it nurture? And, you know, uh-huh. sort of, if I remember correctly, I think his sort of contention was it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of both. But the idea that it is purely nurture and it has no relationship to nurture is a very difficult contention to make mm-hmm. on the back of what appears to be a fairly strong set of data that tells us otherwise mm-hmm. and you know he referred to that popular study as uh, you know if i remember correctly he called it uh, called it science fiction right? <laughs> and, and and this is actually one of the challenges that i think many feminist scholars have with a lot of the allegations that they made is that they don't really stick around for the debate a lot of times they don't. Right? 
they, they leap at you know provisional conclusions or the conclusions that are made from a study that is convenient to their own interests. Yeah. But they really haven't haven't taken into account the full set of just how deep gender difference goes. And so what some of them will do, and this is quite common, is just write off the natural sciences altogether. Mm-hmm. And they'll say fields like biology and you know neuroscience and everything else that falls in these in these fields they'll say well you know they're just western and they're patriarchal and they love the pure <laughs> like if they're yeah. if they're gonna blame any problem on society they'll just pull out the patriarchy card and they're good to and, go <laughs> and they'll talk about the way in which they are hegemonic mm-hmm. and and in some cases they are in some cases, they are mm-hmm. hegemonic fields. I mean, we don't necessarily, we don't uncritically submit to everything that comes out of the natural sciences, certainly mm-hmm. not, right? At the same time, we don't express de facto skepticism just because the piece of information comes out of the natural sciences. Mm-hmm. We evaluate it on the basis of some merit. Exactly. And we, make, and we try to make good faith determinations as to whether or not what's being asserted or alleged actually has foundation and basis to it. And after that, we try to wrestle with whatever those conclusions are insofar as those conclusions are religiously implicative for us as Muslims. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to me that many, many feminists really go through that process. More often what they do is that they, they derive and you know, there, there's a lot that is taken away inductively from the anthropological realm of examining different peoples. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you read a lot of gender critical writers or, or, you know, authors in general, even ones that are in post-colonial studies, um, certainly ones that are in gender studies and feminist studies and things like that, it is not uncommon at all for them to begin citing very small aboriginal tribes. Mm-hmm and the way in which gender is manifested or materialized in them, and just how, how foreign it is to our Western concepts of it. In fact, they have no concept of so many different things. And so the idea that they, they bring these you know, uh, small use cases to make a more thoroughgoing assessment, legation about what they perceive to be a fully constructed, fully mm-hmm. constructed mm-hmm. difference between men and women especially what we're seeing here um, in the modern West and really throughout the world, right? And, you know, I, I, th- I think ultimately this is, um, again, what we're seeing right here is merely a symptom yeah. of, a, of a much larger problem, and which is this idea yeah. of confirmation bias, of only yeah. seeking out information that is going to align with your worldview. And I think as long as you wear those lenses you will only search after the information that will align with your views, the information that will get you more grants, that will get you yeah. more honorariums. And this becomes a real problem for Muslim thinkers because they have, you know, obviously the pre-colonial Islamic tradition, which is the majority of the Islamic tradition. Yeah. Right? yeah, 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 in, yeah. Some ways, in some ways, it's easier to dismiss the Western canon, right? Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about post-Enlightenment thought and people who have, you know, post-Victorian sexual norms that can be rigid or whatever you can look at those and you can dispense with them to say well this is like a white european hegemonic oppressive invention from colonial colonial exploiters and this and that you can you can uh, you can adhere to that but with the islamic tradition you have you have the vast majority of it that predates the colonial era mm-hmm. and you have all these works of tafsir and fiqh and this and that and so what you have to do now in order to really engage them is to start bringing that gender critical lens to your own faith. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there, almost nothing becomes off limits mm-hmm. because your, your underwriting assumption is that you have a prefabricated conclusion that you need to drive to. And that prefabricated conclusion includes certain core commitments around things like gender and what it is and what it isn't and sex and what it is and what it isn't, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And when, and when the Quran conflicts with that, 
And the sunnah conflicts with that. When fiqh conflicts with that. All of these contradictions appear. What you do is you begin to write them away by alleging bias. Hmm. Right? Yes. So the mufassirin were prejudiced by their social and cultural milieu. The fuqaha mm -hmm. were prejudiced by their social and cultural milieu, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all prejudiced in this way, even when the assertions they're making have a direct line and obvious correlation to what's in the actual nasus. Exactly. So what's in the Quran and Sunnah itself. And you begin to express skepticism over otherwise authentic hadith. You start searching out, you know, when the Quran seems to say something that's inegalitarian or mm -hmm. seems to be uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for us strong, strong sexual differentiation, gender difference in the book. Exactly. Of, the book of Allah, the gender discourse, right? Yep. And so what begins to happen is you start you start getting more fanciful with your own linguistic theory, uh, yeah. right? <laughs> linguistic theory. And so you have to keep marshalling all of these very fanciful and creative ways to reconcile Islam with all of these ideas and beliefs that have effectively been, uh, you know, uh, provided to you and pushed in front of you in some ways in a very uh, domineering right way. I mm -hmm. mean, this is, this is not, if you're, if you're, and it's not just academics who deal with this, it's everyday Muslims who are confronted with the question of why doesn't Islam conform to the fashions of our moment? Mm -hmm. And when those two things are misaligned, many people are put in a position where they feel a profound sense of embarrassment Mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. what the Quran and Sunnah have to say. And they, no, become, I... they become ashamed of their own faith. And, they, and that, that sort of seed, we can intellectualize it all we want, but I oftentimes talk about it as, as the germ of individuals who, who cannot get past living in a way that is not dependent on the approval of others. Mm -hmm. right? You know, and I, I think... I... Get past that. As an exactly, it is amazing what you'll be able to do. It is unbelievable what you can do if you if you are not a slave to other people's approval, is phenomenal. But once you are that, uh -huh. it is going to guide you in ways that will totally unravel you religiously. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and you know, I I think it was uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Arad who said that. Um, He's talking about these Western ideas that have emerged in the Muslim world that Muslims have adopted. And he said, he gave the analogy that, you know, when you adopt these ideas, it's as if, you know, you become like the puppy that's being pet by the white man, um, <laughs> just uh, trying to seek his approval. And I think, yeah. I think ultimately a lot of this comes from uh, a place of insincerity. Um, and the great, the, you know, the great lesson I take from the life of Malcolm X, rahimahullah, is that this was a man who was very sincere in his pursuit of truth. And that when he was in his masjid um, after his trip in Sudan, and he was being confronted by a Sudanese Muslim named Ahmed Usman, who was challenging his views, instead of saying, you know, you can, you know, leave my masjid, he said, you know, give me some of your books on Islam and your da'wah material, and let me read it, because I'm actually, I, I'm searching for the truth. Uh, and ultimately, through reading those books, through his interactions, he became a Muslim, and it reminds me of the famous quote from our great jurist, um, Imam Shafi, who said that, you know, if I ever got into a debate with somebody, um, you know, I would always assume that that person might be right and I might be wrong. And so um, I think, you know, all of these topics we've, we've, we've been discussing, they all, they all have a relationship with one another. This idea of fake news, this idea of the spirituality crisis, this idea about gender. All of them are interrelated. And I think that when we, I think that these, as you accurately pointed out, are merely symptoms of a much bigger problem. And that ultimately our ethics that we are that are derived from the Quran address each one of these topics. And that once we can return back and be, you know, unapologetic in our beliefs. Um, and I think one of the great, great lessons we take from the prophets is whenever the prophets وسلم, come. They're always, you know, they're unapologetic. You know, when the Quraysh, you know, they said to the Prophet ﷺ, you know, we'll give you all of the money, we'll give you all of the women, but just, you know, change your message. 
He never conformed on his beliefs. And I think that's another great lesson we can take from Malcolm X is that, you know, the beliefs that we have, we know that they're true. And this isn't a subjective truth. These are objective truths, truths that always exist and will always be around. Because in, in today's philosophy, you know, they talk about, um, I think it was, um, uh, I forgot his name. Foucault, I think Foucault talked about these um, uh, historical truths where things are true at a certain point in history, but as we move to certain epochs or different eras, these truths begin to change. And so religion was true at one point, but now it isn't anymore. And I think, you know, looking back at it on the topic of gender, some people are saying, well, you know, at one point in time, this is what, you know, everybody in the world believed, but now we're enlightened and we have new beliefs. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the challenges that we have in front of us is we have to, we have to figure out how we can engage Muslims, especially young Muslims who are growing up in an environment like ours, mm -hmm. who have internalized modern sensibilities around gender, around sex, around liberation, freedom, individual autonomy, and all of the rest, and come into the masjid or come to their own faith with apprehension, with fear and worry, with the sense of shame and embarrassment and to get them to recognize that their own set of assumptions are infirm, weak, and problematic, right, mm -hmm. and incoherent, and to replace those assumptions with a fuller sense of how Islam teaches us what those commitments should be, right, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, what what is how do we see reality? How do we talk about what reality is and what truth is? And how do we get a person to really commit themselves and be a person that can really embody Iman, right? And we have to have a discourse around that that is not, you know, it, it isn't capitulating, right? Mm -hmm. It isn't getting in, but it's also something that they can, they can look at and say, okay, this is engaged. It is engaged mm -hmm. with the problems of the day. And it provides me a means to compare and contrast everything I've taken in. And it has made for me a fairly serious case for why Islam is the truth mm -hmm. and for why my assumptions on this issue are wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not people come around to that, it's totally different. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides, guides whomsoever he wills. Right? You don't guide who you will. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides whomsoever he wills. And so, you know, hidayah at the end of the day is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our responsibility is to try to provide people a sense of why that hidayah is what it is, why it is the truth why mm -hmm. there's salvation in it, why it is transcendental, and why the parochial commitment that people are being, uh, you know, basically indoctrinated into or swayed into are in fact wrong, right? And that takes sabr, it takes time, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes us to argue with some muscle. We have to have conviction and confidence in our own views and beliefs. Because if we don't have conviction, if we don't have confidence, why would anyone else have confidence about exactly, believe, right? And people aren't going to be persuaded about something that you know we ourselves don't don't really believe in it all that much, or we talk about it the same way that they talk about their culture war artifacts. Mm -hmm. No, right? Like we, we have to be some ways we have to be much better than all of that, right? We exactly, that, right? In sort of the public square, people can have all sorts of commitments and beliefs that they assert incoherently. And they, because they have the cultural winds in their sails, they have the luxury of being individuals who are presumptively looked at as taking moral stances. We don't have that luxury. We have to be much more on our game. We have to be much better read and informed about issues that are going on. Mm -hmm. We have to be prepared to take people to task and expect that we ourselves will be taken to task along the way. Mm, exactly. 
Exactly. I think, I, I think that's, that's an incredible point to end off on is this idea that we, you know, as a community, we should always um, hold each other accountable, right? We should have some constructive criticism. And at the same time, be aware that we ourselves need constructive criticism as well. That none of us are perfect. Each of us have our own flaws. And if we work together, um, again, out of sincerity, not out of, you know, this pursuit of fame, of materialism, of wanting to acquire wealth, wanting to speak in front of large audiences, but truly out of sincerity, right? Out of yaqeen, conviction, that we want to better our community, inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help us. And that's why in uh, Surah Rad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna Allah la yughayiru ma bi qawmin hatta yughayiru ma bi anfusihim. That Allah will not change the conditions of a people until they change themselves. And as a community, if we work together, we can change ourselves. And if we change ourselves, Allah can change our condition. So, no, Zakal, <laughs> oh, nothing? <laughs> no, no, no disagreement on that. Okay. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, I'm glad. Um, but Jazakallah khair, uh, really appreciated a great discussion. And um, we look for, I, I encourage feel like, I feel like we didn't talk about gender as much as you may want. <laughs> You know, we just we just need a topic. You just need yeah. we just need the ball rolling. And if gender was sure. the ball that got this rolling, that's fine. No, um, but Jazakallah Khair, um, I would recommend everybody to read um, some of Mobin's writings, uh, particularly on gender. Um, they have been quite phenomenal. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot, he, he goes a lot more in depth there than he does here. But uh, please check it out. Jazakallah Khair. Um, and we will see you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.